Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. On the podcast today, we have Lynn Ulbricht, the mother of Ross Ulbricht, who in his mid-twenties created, all by himself, the website called Silk Road. It was an underground marketplace that existed on what is called the dark web, the great underbelly of the internet that is invisible to regular browsers and search engines. It eventually grew to become an immensely popular forum for drugs and other items, reaching 1 million users in 2013. Eventually, U.S. federal agents tracked down Ross and ambushed him in a San Francisco public library, and he was sentenced to two life terms plus 40 years in a maximum security prison without the possibility of parole. However, his trial was mired with allegations that the United States came down on him with extraordinary force, using unfair means and overreaches to accomplish an excessive sentence, possibly violating several U.S. amendments. To this day, Lynn fights for her son's case to be heard fairly, and ultimately for Ross to be freed through her website freeross.org. In this endeavor, she has been joined by other groups that advocate for greater privacy and rights of the citizen on the internet, for more sensible drug policy, or for libertarian values surrounding the internet, cryptocurrency, and decentralized technology. Some time ago, I invited Lynn to come to the University of Texas at Austin and give a talk as part of my Molotov seminar series. It was well attended, including by members of organizations such as Students for Sensible Drug Policy. In this first episode, I first give an overview of the story of Ross and Silk Road, then we will hear the talk that Lynn gave. The second episode is the recording of a one-on-one conversation that I had with Lynn at my apartment, where I asked her specific questions regarding the case, her position on it, and about Ross as a person. Okay, let's first go over the story of Ross and Silk Road. Ross Ulbricht was born in Austin, Texas, and is currently 37 years old. He got a bachelor's in physics from the University of Texas at Dallas on a full scholarship, then a master's in material science from Penn State. He had been exploring psychedelics and Eastern philosophy since college. Around that time, he outlined in his journal an idea for a website, quote, where people could buy anything anonymously with no trail whatsoever that could lead back to them, end quote. Soon after, Ross coded up the Silk Road, where people could log in and buy and sell anything and pay for it using the cryptocurrency Bitcoin, which would leave the identities and transactions of this market anonymous. The central administrator of Silk Road had the username Dread Pirate Roberts, or DPR. When the Silk Road began, DPR announced a code of conduct for the site. Our basic rules are to treat others as you would wish to be treated and don't do anything to hurt or scam someone else. The evidence suggests that as a starter product, Ross grew his own psilocybin mushrooms and sold 10 pounds of it on the site. 
There is still ambiguity over whether multiple people in addition to Ross could have been behind the username DPR. For example, in an August 2013 interview to Forbes, DPR said that they had not created the site but had taken over its operations from their predecessor who had created it. Over the years, U.S. federal agents from the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, the FBI, Homeland Security, the IRS, the Secret Service, and even the U.S. Postal Inspection, uh, because the drugs were coming through the mail, uh, began trying to infiltrate Silk Road's inner circle. Carl Force, a DEA agent, pretended to be a drug kingpin on Silk Road, got in touch with DPR, and via late-night chats over a year, he began to build a camaraderie with DPR. A different Silk Road drug seller, Curtis Green, who had started working for DPR remotely, eventually got busted and began cooperating with the DEA. DPR got wind that Green had been found out and told undercover agent Force that he needed Green beaten up and forced to return the Bitcoin that he had stolen. Force recorded a Secret Service agent and a Baltimore postal inspector pretend to be thugs who dunked Green in a bathtub and sent the recording to DPR. Next, DPR asked for Green's murder. Force faked photos of these as well, and DPR sent $80,000 to a government-controlled bank account. However, Curtis Green himself has later tweeted, Ross Ulbricht got a raw deal. There is so much more to the Silk Road story than people know, and I can't yet talk about. I don't believe Ross is dangerous, or that it's in his character to order a hit on anyone. He should never have gotten that horrible sentence. Hashtag free Ross. The investigation showed that DPR paid for other executions as well, but these charges of violence and murder were all later dropped in court. Eventually, the FBI detectives found the true IP address of the Silk Road server and traced it physically to a data center in Iceland, where the local police turned over a copy of the server to the FBI. They also found that the last known login to the Silk Road was from San Francisco. At that time, Ross was living there with roommates under a fake name. Allegedly, the feds eventually linked Silk Road to his real name through a programming question he had once asked online. In 2013, Ross was ambushed and arrested by the FBI at a San Francisco public library where he was reportedly caught logged in as DPR on the Silk Road website. During the trial, Ross admitted to having created the Silk Road, but the defense was that someone else had then taken over the operations. He was sentenced to two lifetimes plus 40 years in maximum security prison without possibility of parole. The following are some excerpts from a court recording during an appeal by Ross. This is the United States of America versus Ulbricht. May I proceed, Your Honor? May. Thank you. May it please the court. I'm Joshua Dreytel. I represent the appellant, Ross Ulbricht. 
And it's a natural question to ask why and whether all the errors we've cited with respect to the trial made a difference in light of all the evidence that the government presented. And here's why these errors mattered and why they denied Mr. Ulbricht a fair trial. The government got to present its case, but the defense was not afforded the same opportunity. Thus, of course, all the government's evidence looks uncontested and very good. But starting before the trial and throughout the trial, there was preclusion of every effort that the defense made to mount a defense. And the first is the evidence of the agent's corruption. And the essence of the defense was that the digital evidence that was presented, a lot of it from the Silk Road site itself and from other sources as well, was not reliable, was susceptible to manipulation and fabrication. And not necessarily by the government. How was any of the material about force exculpatory? Of all the information you finally obtained about force and his corruption, how was it exculpatory? Because he was selling information to Dread Pirate Roberts under a variety of different aliases. So what? I mean, how does that show your client didn't do these crimes? Because it shows that the real DPR had knowledge about the progress of the investigation in the early part of 2013. And then you have a series of events that set up an exit strategy for Dread Pirate Roberts to get out. And all of this is material that we were not permitted to develop. This is the government cited grand jury secrecy, yet they'd already interviewed the two agents. And again, we only heard about one agent. Talk about the sentence a bit. I mean, it is unusual for a young man in his early 30s with no criminal record who himself was not dealing drugs, except I think some mushrooms early on, and at least the evidence suggested that, to receive a life sentence. Isn't that quite a leap to have that kind of sentence imposed? Later on, Agent Force and a Secret Service agent on his team were themselves charged with running a series of rackets on Silk Road and stealing Bitcoin, and they were sentenced to prison. In 2017, Ross's team filed a petition asking the Supreme Court to review his case, asking whether the warrantless seizure of an individual's internet traffic information without probable cause violated the Fourth Amendment, and whether the Sixth Amendment allows judges to find facts necessary to support an otherwise unreasonable sentence. Twenty-one organizations filed briefs supporting this, including the National Lawyers Guild, American Black Cross, Reason Foundation, and Drug Policy Alliance. It was named Petition of the Day by legal expert and SCOTUS Block founder Tom Goldstein. The Supreme Court, however, denied the petition. In 2020, President Trump reportedly considered pardoning Ross before leaving office, but ended up not doing so. In the years since Ross's arrest, the world of cryptocurrency and decentralized economies has seen explosive growth into many legitimate applications with high demand, including marketplaces such as OpenSea, leaving governments struggling to maintain the narrative that these technologies are criminal. I recently visited the current version of the Silk Road website, which is managed by unknown entities. As a testament to how much these technologies have become mainstream, it is now exceedingly easy to do this using Brave, my default browser, 
which interfaces directly with the anonymous Tor network. On the site, an announcement reads that vendors selling weapons, poison, anything related to terrorism, child porn or any other kind of illegal porn, or users who threaten others will be permanently banned. Um, on the site, I found mostly drugs, fake passports and fake driver's licenses, fake doctor's notes, fake certificates for exams like IELTS and TOEFL, counterfeit money, fake Facebook likes, stolen or leaked credit card and bank account information, and tutorials and malware for hacking and monetary fraud, and some porn that at least at first glance was not child porn. In the eight years since his arrest, Ross hasn't had access to a computer in his maximum security prison, but still writes and draws on paper, and these are still published on his online blog. He has kept up with some of the advances in decentralization technology, and has recently written about decentralizing social media and about the Maker Protocol, which has designed the USD-pegged cryptocurrency DAI, which I have been mentioning for donations since day one of this podcast. In addition to this, Ross also publishes poetry, drawings, and personal reflections. This year, the 2021 Bitcoin conference presented Ross's first public comments recorded from the prison over the phone since his arrest eight years ago. The following are some excerpts. I'm a nonviolent, first-time offender. But if nothing changes, I'll spend the next few decades in this cage. Then, sometime later this century, I'll grow old and die. I'll finally leave prison, but I'll be in a body bag. For better or worse, Silk Road is part of Bitcoin history now, but I worry that by putting Silk Road online, I made things harder for us. There's no way to know how things would have turned out differently, but I just want to say to the extent that I made things harder for us, I'm sorry. To the extent that my actions led to drug abuse and addiction, I'm sorry. I want you to understand what it means to lose your freedom. Let me start by telling you about the hole. It goes by many names, the, the shoe, segregation, the box, but for me, it's the hole. The hole is the prison within the prison. I once spent four months straight in the hole. Not easy for me to talk about, but I will. The hole can make you or break you, and there was a time when it broke me. It started with my mind racing out of control. I, I felt like the walls were crushing in on me, like, like I just had to get out of that cell. This lasted days. Then I started beating the walls and kicking the heavy metal door. Something, something deep inside me cried out for freedom. 
I want you to understand what it means to lose your freedom. My mother, this was after I was sentenced, my mother was invited to give a speaking tour in Europe. She was raising awareness about what had happened to me and was looking for help. At a talk in Poland, she started to feel a bit sick and had to fly home early. So the next morning, I called my sister from the prison, and the first thing she said was, has anyone told you about mom yet? I said, what about her? And uh, she said to me in this voice, she said, oh, Ross, Ross, Ross. And I knew her mom had been feeling sick. And and in that moment, I just knew my sister was going to. This call is from a federal prison. My sister was going to tell me our mom was dead. But she said, mom's in the hospital. And I was like. Oh, thank God, she's not dead. But I was like, wait, the hospital? That's not good either. Technically, our mother had died. Her heart stopped at the breakfast table that morning. My uncle kept it going with CPR, and she was rushed to the hospital. She was unconscious in the ICU when I called. It was a long time before I was able to talk to her, and I didn't know if she would live. We didn't know if there would be brain damage. No one would say it, but I knew it was my fault. She had been redlining for two years since the day I was arrested, pushing, pushing, pushing every moment of every day for my freedom. Stress-induced cardiomyopathy. Call it broken heart syndrome. I broke my mother's heart and it nearly killed her. The pain I've caused my family. I didn't I didn't think of them. Not as much as I should have when I was taking those risks. After I was arrested, another prisoner came up to me, a, a young man. He had a magazine and he said, he said, Ross, they wrote an article about you. So I flipped to the article and I'll never forget what I saw. It was an illustration of me. And what was so strange was the face had my features and proportions, but the skin had a putrid color. The, uh, the eyes were bloodshot. I was... I was hunched over like some kind of ghoul. I pushed the magazine away. I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't face what I was seeing. It felt like I could feel physical pain in my chest, like claws were tearing through me. The caricature they created was a violent drug lord. That is not who I am. That is a lie. It's a lie that was carefully crafted to justify keeping me in this cage until I die. It's a lie designed to turn you against me, to turn your heart off. They lied. 
on the record. They cheated. That's on the record. They stole. Two of them went to prison over the stealing. They hid evidence. That's on the record. They destroyed evidence. That's on the record. They planted evidence. That's on the record. At one point, they were looking into how they could give me the death penalty. They wanted to inject chemicals into my veins that would stop my heart. This call is from a Salem prison. But today, right now, I have a message for those that have been lying about me and those that have been thoughtlessly repeating those lies. Please stop. You are hurting me. Please stop. I want you to understand what it means to lose your freedom. The irony is that I made Silk Road in the first place because I thought I was furthering the things I cared about. Freedom, privacy, equality. But by making Silk Road, I wound up in a place where those things don't exist. So this episode is Lynn's invited talk at the university, where I first introduce her and the state of cryptocurrency at that time. Then she takes the stage to present her views on Ross's case and the legalities of the ways the U.S. government digitally eavesdrop on people like Ross. This actually reminds me that just some weeks back, multiple governments around the world, including that of my home country of India, were found to have planted the secret surveillance software called Pegasus into the devices of their political opponents and critics. At the end of her talk, Lynn takes questions from the audience. If you enjoy visiting the Room of Lives, consider donating Ether, DAI, or other Ethereum-based coins to abhranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. Today's talk was a result of the unpredictable knocking about of the universe. I met a girl called Corinne at a Muse concert in Austin. We became friends and started talking about a lot of things. She's a teacher of the deaf in San Antonio. She visited me later in Austin and attended a Molotov seminar. She had read about the Silk Road story and donated to the Free Ross Foundation and had been emailing back and forth with Lynn. She put us in touch, and here we are. 
I did some research into the story of Silk Road and Ross while preparing for this event and also did a longish interview with Lynn for my podcast. And I can tell you that it's both a harrowing and an important story. We are children of a technological age. The pace of advancement of technology is consistently increasing and has reached an almost mythical speed now, whether or not we appreciate it. In our lifetime, technologies are becoming possible that would have been magic when we were children. And yet often we hardly bat an eyelid. Not least because this dizzying pace is often beyond what we can fully comprehend and understand as individuals. It is not surprising, therefore, that heavier, slower-moving organizations of people, such as governments, are lagging behind even farther than individuals. We are routinely facing situations where the razor's edge of technology is colliding with dated legal and administrative systems that are struggling to grapple with these new and ill-understood frontiers. I shall go farther to contend that technology poses a more direct challenge to centralized authorities like governments. Technological developments, at least in the last few decades, has had the effect of empowering people and mediating among them and has therefore emerged as a more distributed alternative to older, centrally controlled resources such as the ones that governments and large private entities have been responsible for. At first, it was the internet that gave us cheap and accessible communication and information. Eventually, this laid in the direction of crowdsourcing and centralized, trusted, and paid experts, such as the Encyclopedia Britannica, were replaced entirely by crowdsourced communities like Wikipedia and Stack Exchange. People are now able to directly provide transportation and lodging to each other through rideshares and Airbnb. More recently, with the advancement of blockchain, the technology that underlies cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, a new wave of developers are dreaming of an even more radical movement towards truly decentralized, peer-to-peer -peer solutions to problems so far, so far entrusted with centralized third parties. Among the envisioned applications are decentralized markets running on cryptocurrency to replace third parties like Amazon, very much along the lines of Ross's idea of Silk Road. Only this time, these ideas are gaining more legitimacy and acceptance. I gave Molotov Seminar 68 on blockchain technology and the potential it has for our future. I was therefore pleasantly surprised to read a letter that Ross wrote to the organizer, organizers of the Bitcoin Super Conference that recently hosted Lynn. He writes, <clears throat> we are in the middle of a profound technological revolution. I'm grateful just bearing witness to it and playing a small part. Let us stay grounded in the principles that Bitcoin was incubated in. Decentralization, a focus on empowering individuals and a community of love and respect. End quote. Governments around the world are reacting differently to this revolution. Some, like in China and India, are striking back with crackdowns and messages of justified caution, while others, like in some East Asian and Scandinavian nations, are beginning to promote and partner with blockchain technology. Is this the inevitable, inevitable course for the future towards what humans really want? How will new laws have to be written and old laws rewritten to accommodate these sweeping changes? Ross's case presents one of the important ways that stimulates such transition. The manner in which the existing system has dealt with it and will continue to deal with it will set precedents that will define the interaction of technology and government in the coming years. So then we'll talk today about the story of Silk Road and Ross for about 40 
minutes as I understand it. And following that, there will be a Q&A session. Um, so please don't be shy about your questions. And then finally, uh, uh, we'll sort of end the formal event there and you're free to come up and, and, and talk to Lynn about the Free Ross Foundation or uh, any other uh, related topic. So please help me in welcoming uh, Lynn Ubrin. Asking questions, please make sure that you're being as loud as possible because I'm trying to record them on, on camera. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me? Great. Um, well, as Neil said, I'm Lynn Ulbricht. My claim to fame for the last four years has been that I'm Ross Ulbricht's mother. You can see him up here. He grew up in Austin. Um, he was a physics major at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, Ross now is serving a double life sentence, plus 40 years, in a maximum security prison. There is no possibility of parole in the federal system since the 80s. Anybody who's arrested in the federal system has no possibility of parole or redemption or anything. That's where they will spend their sentence. He was never charged with causing any death or bodily injury. Uh, no victims were at trial that came forward at trial, said Ross and Harlem in any way. No history of violence, no history of criminal activity. So what could he have possibly done? You know, he didn't bomb a building, he didn't mow down people, he didn't um, kidnap children or torture anyone. He's in there for, uh, oh and by the way, there's a hundred letters on our website, freeross.org, written by people who know him, many of them lost it who attest to his character and how he's contributed to their lives that were submitted to the judge saying, please give him the mandatory minimum. Please give him a chance. And uh, she basically brushed it aside. But in any case, he's in there for creating and running the Silk Road website, as Neil said. What it was was an online open marketplace that was created to protect the anonymity and privacy of its users. It was not specifically designed to be a drug website. And in fact, many other things were on there. It, uh, it was really product agnostic. It was up to the buyers and sellers what they chose to exchange. They used the um, little known at the time, cryptocurrency Bitcoin, and it was really Bitcoin's first proof of concept. There, it's testing ground. Um, it was actually used, um, and it drove its early adoption. It did, Silk Road did have rules, um, because Ross is a very strong believer in voluntary interaction, not using force, peaceful interaction. Um, the administration of the site had prohibitions that created victims, such as there was no child pornography, there was no uh, hitmen, or other violent services. There was no stolen property. Um, but there were drugs that was considered a free choice. Um, there were also things like raw milk and art and books. Uh, I had a guy just write me two days ago. He said, I was able to get methadone on Silk Road and it helped me break my opioid habit. It was, you know, there were things, people would get CBD oil there for their children who had life-threatening seizures. They couldn't get it because of the drug war. 
uh, except on Silk Road at the time. And, and for this, and most of the drugs, by the way, for the life of the site, were small amounts of marijuana. And um, that was not, by the way, allowed to be mentioned at trial. It was not allowed to be mentioned. There were legal goods, there were other goods. The only thing that was mentioned were, were drugs, mostly very dangerous drugs. Um, and for this, he, for not selling them, for having this website, he was uh, sentenced to more than most murderers get and other violent offenders. And there's been a lot written about who Ross is. Um, Ross was a, a libertarian, um, on fire for freedom and free markets. Here he is at Penn State um, with Ron Paul. He worked on the Ron Paul campaign. So he's very idealistic. He was 26 years old. He's not the murderous thug that is often uh, portrayed in the media. And he was passionate about bringing the experience of free markets to people. And um, he saw the potential for monetary freedom with cryptocurrency. And he, initially, he, before creating Silk Road, he invented a video game. He created a video game while he was living here in Austin, which was based on Austrian economics and um, free market principles and almost got it published, but didn't, so he, he jerked the internet. Um, now, for because he did this, he's living in a maximum security prison. Here I am visiting him last September. It's in Florence, Colorado. It's a place where they put their most violent criminals besides the supermax. That's three layers of razor wire behind me and two gun towers keeping us all safe from walls. Uh, and the reason he's there is not because he's violent or anything, it's because of the sentence. People who have a life sentence automatically get put in this place, whether they're violent or not. Now the judge, Forrest, Tavern Forrest, could have given him the mandatory minimum, which was long, it was 20 years. That's a generation, it's long, it's a long sentence. That wasn't enough for her, so neither was 30 years or 40. And Ross can't get on the internet. So it's not like in 40 or 50 years he's going to come out and um, invent or create another Silk Road. I mean, he, he would be in a whole new world. Um, really, even 90 years wasn't enough for her. She's not happy, would not be happy until Ross leaves this place as a corpse. Essentially, she gave him a, what the ACLU calls a walking death sentence. And Ross said to me himself, he goes, Mom, you know, a life sentence is a death sentence. It just takes longer. And Ross is not unique. This is the shocking thing. It's not just him. Um, life sentences has, have quintupled since the 80s in this country. You know, when I was growing up, hardly anybody got life. It was a big deal. It was, um, you know, uh, you had to really be severely dangerous, you know, mass murderer or something. And now one in nine prisoners has a, has a life sentence. That's, and over 17,000 of them are nonviolent, like Ross. And if you count sentences so long that you're gonna die in there, it's not officially like, okay, it's 120 years or whatever. It's over 200,000 people. And I'll, they're not necessarily violent people. Uh, for example, a friend of Ross's in this prison named Tony DeJohn, has a life sentence for marijuana, for selling marijuana 15 years ago. He's done 15 years already, and um, he has a life sentence. 
And ironically, the federal prisons in Colorado were marijuana as well. Well, we have kept fighting for Ross um, now for four years. Um, not going to stop. I'm a mother. I cannot let my son die in that place. He's a good person. He um, has a lot to give. And um, he's not a danger to anyone. And so we've brought it with the support of a lot of great people. Uh, we're knocking on the door of the Supreme Court now. And uh, we've, Ross's team has submitted what's called a petition for a writ of certiori, or a cert petition for short. And by the time you get to the Supreme Court, you're not dealing with, for instance, the corruption in Ross, Ross's case, or a lot of the other violations in the trial and sentencing. The Supreme Court just wants to look at very broad-reaching issues. And there are two very important issues involving Americans' Fourth and Sixth Amendment rights that are, uh, I don't want to touch on them today, explain them, but um, that's what the petition is addressing and asking the court to look at. And this petition is supported by 21 groups from both sides of the political spectrum in five amicus briefs that go along with the petition saying, hey, Supreme Court, this is important. These are important issues. You need to look at them. So we're hopeful they will. Um, so the first one, the first issue, is going to affect all of us, how they rule, is affects your Fourth Amendment protections. And it asks, does it violate the Fourth Amendment for the government to seize an individual's private internet traffic information without probable cause, which is legally for a good reason, or warrant, and use that information to arrest and convict him? Can they do this without a warrant? Um, and basically, can they do it to millions of people every day with no restriction or oversight? Can they just go through all of our internet browsing history and um, without a warrant or a good reason? Are they free to do this? And one of the amici in the world brief is the Cato Institute, and they said, well, yeah, the Fourth Amendment still applies online. Of course it should. But the question is, does it? Do the courts think it does? Because there's a loophole that the government's been using now for almost four decades to um, violate our privacy. And it's based on this technology, dial telephone. And basically, it was a case called Smith versus Maryland, uh, again, uh, in 79, so it's almost four decades ago. And basically, the court ruled that if you dial a number from a dial telephone, that number, not the content of the conversation, just the number, is um, not protected if you gave that if the, you gave it to a third party, the phone company, and it became known as the third party doctrine. And um, that decision in the court, and it wasn't was not unanimous. There were judges who said, no, wait a minute, the phone number should be protected by the Fourth Amendment. It's part of the content, but they lost the argument. And it's dramatically limited the scope of the Fourth Amendment in search and seizure law. Um, and the thing is, things have changed just a little since then, since the dial telephone. But the law has not, as Neil said, it is not keeping up with what's going on in technology. So now, of course, our phones and laptops and computers have endless amounts of information on them. Uh, so financial and credit card records, political affiliations and interests, sexual orientation and activity, religious activities, medical records, job applications, photos, 
documents and file sharing on the cloud, location information, browsing activity, emails, what we watch, what we post, what we buy, what we research, whom we date, what apps we use. The government can look into all of this without a warrant or probable cause. They don't have to get a warrant. I haven't bothered to get a warrant. I mean, if they came into my house and they seized my file cabinet, it would be clearly unconstitutional. You violated the Fourth Amendment. I didn't have the file cabinet anymore. It's all on my computer. I mean, and they are saying they can use that. They can go ahead and do that. And uh, all that data. And then also, the FBI, DOJ, Department of Justice, and the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency can also use that data because they have direct access to it through the um, government searches. Which brings us to Ross's case. I'm sure you are all more technically savvy than I am, but I'm just going to give a very simple explanation of um, what they did with Ross's case. And it basically illustrates how, um, from an email address, the government can basically geographically locate you and track you, like having a collar on an animal. They can, they can do that with your email addresses. They turn it into a tracking device. So you have your email address, that's anywhere in the world. Um, and uh, the government obtained Ross's email address. There's a story out there of how I personally believe, and Edward Snowden probably basically said the NSA was involved in, it was unthinkable they were not involved in Ross's case. I think the NSA legally got this address and then made up a story to cover it, which is they do, this is known, and it's called parallel construction. It's like it's illegal for them to do it, so then there's a parallel story it says, no, no, that, we, this is how we did it. So anyway, that's a whole other issue, but um, they got his email address. And from that, they identified the IP address, collected data about the internet traffic, and identified his home address, and um, put what's called a pen register and trap and trace device on it, um, and called pen traps for short, without a warrant, uh, on Ross's wireless router in his home. So now we're in the home. And then from there, the data stream coming and going from the IP address contains the MAC address or the unique identification. And they got that, and so then they put a pen trap on his laptop. So now it's on his devices, phone, laptop. Now once that's done, they can essentially track his location and exactly what he's doing online moment by moment, all without a warrant, and for two months, they used an array of electronic tools to monitor him and swept in tens of thousands of individual transmissions, possibly more, all without a warrant. This <laughs> means they can do it to any of us. They, without our knowledge, without a warrant, without the court saying it's okay, they can just do it. Um, and, Ross's lawyer said at appeal, they have a warrant to do this. And the court rejected it because they relied on the third party doctrine and said, well, no, it's, it's until the courts change this rule, sorry, this rule, the third party doctrine says they don't need a warrant. So again, it's based on the dial telephone. And, um, Basically, they're saying that the tens of thousands of transmission over two months is the same as a dialed number on a rotary phone. And the, the courts are starting to question this. Um, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Sotomayor said um, that 
you know, it, it may be necessary to reconsider that you don't have any privacy just because a you didn't, you, you gave it to a third party. It's ill-suited to the digital age. And she also said it's doubtful that people would accept without complaint the warrantless disclosure to the government of a list of every website they had visited in the last week, month, or year. I don't, I don't like that idea of the government being able to see exactly what I'm doing online without my knowledge, without a warrant, just decide. That's why they wrote the Fourth Amendment, to give us privacy. And yet, that is exactly what happened to Ross and, again, to any of us. Um, when the government puts a pen trap on your computer. Another case, Riley um, versus the US, addressing again this kind of um, unlimited open season on our data and our privacy, said that basically the courts say that internet traffic information is constitutionally the same as a dialed phone number. It's like saying a ride on horseback is the same as a flight to the moon. Just because one takes you from point A to point B, let's say it's the same. It's so different. It's so totally different now. Um, so, you know, basically, I think this third party doctrine needs to be retired with the dial telephone. I think it's time. We need to, you know, the courts need to get up to speed here with technology. And I hope Ross's case can make that happen. It help make that happen. So, that's one of our goals with the petition to the Supreme Court. <coughs> The other one is the Sixth Amendment, which, uh, among other things, guarantees Americans the right to a trial by jury, 12 people, all agreeing that the person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Not one judge, 12 individuals. Uh, and, and the petition saying that by enhancing unreasonable sentence, using uncharged crimes that were never deliberated on by a jury, Judge Forrest violated the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. There were a few issues where she did this. The most um, egregious is saying that Ross planned murders for hire. You may have read about this. You may not know. It was never charged at trial. It was never proven. It was, they dropped the charges in New York two months after they brought them. There is still an indictment in Maryland that's been there for four and a half years now, just sitting there unprosecuted. And it's based on evidence submitted by an agent who is now in prison for corruption. Um, and yet, the appellate court accepted this, said, yeah, this is what justifies the sentence. We're going to allow the sentence because of this. It was never brought to a jury. Um, and upheld what the, they said was the power to condemn a young man to die in prison without a jury, without a trial. It's a lynching. And how's that not a lynching? Here's what the prosecutor said at trial. He's allowed to talk about it, which the defense said, wait a second, if he talks about this and doesn't have to prove it, and the jury doesn't have to rule on it, this is going to prejudice the jury. And basically that's what he did. He said, look, the defendant has not been charged. We're not even saying anybody was murdered, but just take our word for it. He did it. He did it. He did it. You know, not uh, here are the facts, here's the proof, etc. And um, so there's no attempt to prove it. And um, the petition says the reason we even have a Sixth, sixth Amendment was it was written to protect us and anyone accused of a crime 
against the arbitrary exercise of power by a prosecutor or judge. It was written to protect us from exactly what Judge Forrest has done to Ross and uh, calls what she did an unmatched example of runaway judicial fact-finding. She just decided it was true and decided to put him in a cage for life because she thinks it's true. Um, Judge Marvin Frankel said, the almost wholly unchecked and sweeping powers we give to judges in the fashioning of sentences are terrifying and intolerable for a society that professes devotion to the rule of law. And again, Ross isn't unique. He knows a lot of people, where he is right now, who said if they were, they were either acquitted or not charged of something, and the judge decided to uh, charge them anyway, or put the sentence them anyway on that thing. And it might, you might find it interesting that not only did Ross deny this allegation, and anyone who knows him, at least everyone I've talked to, doesn't believe it. But even Curtis Green, who was the high-level administrator in Silk Road, and supposedly the person that Ross planned the murder to kill, and whose picture was taken, you know, as a corpse, and you know, this whole drama, he doesn't even think Ross did it, <laughs> and tweeted that, and said he thought Ross got a raw deal. There's more to the story. Um, he doesn't think Ross is dangerous, or did he ever do that, and he shouldn't have gotten that sentence. Even he, the, the, the victim. So what, you know, I don't think the government believes it either. Uh, if they did, I think, or if they had proof, they would have charged him. I mean, they pile on charges. They're not shy about it. But I don't really think that's why. I think it was something they used to smear him and undermine support and um, get their man and their trophy. But um, I think the allegations instead, or I think the real reason was nailed by uh, Scott Greenfield, who's a, a criminal de a defense attorney in New York. And he said, it's really for an idea. It's for a platform. It's very, very threatening. And he said he was sentenced so harshly for thinking he could create a virtual abort of the other reach of government and its law. I'm not saying it's a smart idea, you know, but a life sentence, double life sentence, plus 40 years, uh, the judge herself said basically the same thing. She said, it's notable that the reasons you started Silk Road are philosophical, and I'm not, I don't know that it's a philosophy left behind. So we can't, we're supposed, we're, this is going to enhance a sentence of life because we have a philosophy the judge doesn't like. Uh, I think there's a First Amendment that's supposed to be uh, depending on free speech. Um, she also said, that there are hosts on the site, they shouldn't say Ross wrote them, just that they're there, which discuss the laws as the oppressor, and she finds them deeply troubling and very dangerous. And, you know, bringing up these ideas and, and statements. Now, we are allowed to say that we believe the government's the oppressor in this country, I think, unless something's changed dramatically lately. Um, and um, Congress has prohibited judges from considering someone's political views in a sentencing. Um, the First Amendment, of course, even partly on political philosophy, a sentence based on that is forbidden by the First Amendment on freedom of speech. And frankly, I think that by her doing this, by her uh, attacking the First Amendment like this, she's the one who's troubling and dangerous, not Ross. 
Now, along with the philosophy, those cryptocurrency aspect of it, I believe, and use of Tor, which is the onion router and it's an anonymous way to browse the internet. And I don't think Ross was the only one who saw the potential for monetary freedom. Uh, and um, it got the attention, I think, of financial powers. And uh, I don't think they thought it was such a great idea to have this monetary freedom. And uh, Ch Chuck Schumer, who was on the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, and I think represented these powers, uh, was the, the impetus behind the whole Silk Road investigation and um, uh, prosecution and um, taking it down. Now, Judge Forrest, the judge, was recommended by Chuck Schumer for her position on the bench. Creek Barrara, who is the lead uh, prosecutor, was Schumer's special counsel for years. Ross was uh, tried in New York, even though he was arrested in California. They brought him to New York, Schumer State. He even uh, said publicly, in a public letter, that um, uh, congratulations, Eric Holder, you got your man. But he said it before trial. You know, I'm like, hello, aren't we supposed to be innocent until proven guilty in this country? Um, I believe, I personally believe, it wasn't about drugs, it wasn't about, I think it was about Bitcoin. I think it was about an alternate currency out of the government's control and also the use of an anonymous browsing because they even said in their papers, in Ross's case, they said anyone who uses Tor has criminal intent. Well, you know, journalists use it, dissidents use it, all kinds of people use Tor. And, you know, you could say, look, you know, yeah, that's all good points, but they just want to protect us from evil drug dealers and drugs, and, you know, they have to do that, you know? And I'm like, well, really? Well, then how come the leading drug seller on Silk Road got 10 years? How come the biggest cocaine and heroin, heroin seller on Silk Road got five years? The biggest meth seller got three years. A Peter National Administrator at the height of Silk Road got 17 months time served. And most shocking to me is that Blake Bengal, who um, once Silk Road was taken down, he started Silk Road 2.0. Oh no, I didn't see he was ran it. I think someone else started it, got out, and he took over and ran it. It was uh, bigger. Sold more drugs in Silk Road in a month, more listings. He was in custody for 16 days, that's it, and he was released. So he's free and Ross gets life. But yet Ross is so dangerous for doing basically what they said Blake Bentall did. They said it was identical, the government themselves, and that what he did was identical. Are we in danger from Blake Benthol too? And I'm not saying he should be in jail. I'm just saying there should be equal for, equal sentencing under the law. It's actually the law. So uh, here's Ross, same conviction, basically double life without parole plus 40 years. It's kind of scary when you think about it. Now, um, just in case, my, uh, you know, proof of this. Here's the Bureau of Prison websites. Uh, they say where prisoners are. And here's Ross. They have his release date as life. It should say his release date of his death. Because that really is his release date. And Blake Benthol was released on November 21st, 2014, 16 days after he was arrested. Um, 
Again, I'm not arguing for him to be in prison where Ross is. I'm saying he should have equal treatment. The uh, Sentencing Reform Act and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and other law all say similar crimes should have similar sentences. There shouldn't be this disparity uh, among sentencing. This is such an extreme example of a violation of that. Scott Greenfield, again, uh, the criminal defense attorney, basically said that the Silk Road case is the birth of law as applied to our digital future. Watch it as a spectator at your peril. This is bigger than Ross or Silk Road or um, one guy. Um, it's, as I showed you with the petition, there's broad reaching things about it. And there's more, there's a lot more. And if you go to our website, freerust.org, it can take you, there's a timeline of all the things that happen at trial are outrageous, um, sentencing, I mean, it goes on and on. And even after uh, the trial, tampering was discovered and proven. Another person logging in is Dread Pirate Roberts, that's the, the handle of the person running the website. I think there were many. A login was discovered after Ross was in solitary for seven weeks. Almost seven weeks. And uh, who was that? You know, there's so many questions and so much corruption. I mean, the, the tampered evidence that was discovered is probably another corrupt agent. Um, and uh, we can go, yeah, I don't have time to go into all that, but uh, it's on our website. So, um, Basically, uh, here, here's a picture of Ross and you. I, I love this picture because we haven't had a picture taken with him in four years. And also, it, it proves I actually am his mother and, like, not a crazy woman running around, you know. Uh, that's me and Ross. <laughs> and um, when I visited him. And uh, uh, I just invite you to, you know, ask me questions, but um, also to go to the website. There's a lot of misinformation out there about this case, about him. Um, I, I really had an eye-opening experience with the media. I'm kind of shocked. It's kind of, it's very disturbing how you can't really rely on a lot of it. And um, so there's lots of ways to support us. And, you know, of course, there's ways to donate, but also donate energy and spread the word. And um, follow me on Twitter and like our Facebook page and all that. And every little bit helps. So if you are interested, not only in him, but in your future. I mean, this is you guys' future. I mean, you know, you're young. You've got your whole lives ahead of you. And the thing is, we're at a tipping point in history, I do believe, where we can go either way here. The courts are kind of grappling with, um, they're trying to apply 20th century law to the 21st century. It's not fitting. They're trying to shoehorn it in. It doesn't work. And so they're kind of grappling with these issues. And how they decide is going to set precedent. It's going to impact all of us. So we're at a crossroads. Are we going to go towards more innovation and freedom? Or are we going to go towards more government intrusion and control? I mean, that's kind of the question. It's up before us at this pivotal time in history. So this is one case that will set precedent. And um, I, for one, want to go down the freedom road. So um, I, uh, you know. I invite you to visit the site and um, get involved. That's it. Thank you.
Does anybody have questions? Or, uh, well, I guess we'll start in the back. Um, I'm a law student right now, and a couple of us are writing our seminar papers on U.S. v. Carpenter, which is currently yeah. at the Supreme Court. Yeah, if you could please uh, speak up when you're asking questions. Sorry. Uh, so I'm talking about U.S. v. Carpenter. Yeah. It's currently at the Supreme Court um, confronting the third-party doctor. And do you know how that will possibly affect his case and if his lawyer has talked to you about that at all? Right. She, uh, she was asking about uh, Carpenter in the U.S. that's uh, been accepted by the Supreme Court and kind of be ruled on. Yeah, in fact, it could be potential, potentially be grouped with Carpenter. Um, <clears throat> actually, Ross's case is a little more um, invasive because it's all of our internet browsing as opposed to tracking someone on the phone mm -hmm. to different places. But um, yes, it could. And it could even be not actually ruled on separately, but under what they decide on Carpenter. Sorry, my throat is just a, I should cover this one. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it could we could just be a group of carpenter and hand it back to the Ohio court with guidance from the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool you're doing that. You're studying that. Yeah. So now you can study Ross's petition too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, There's something that's been on four networks to kind of mine a lot of traffic to the website. And the four network is funded in large part by the State Department of the Broadcasting Board of Governors. So I'm wondering if you have any opinions on boards sort of, uh, or that if he has said anything about this? He hasn't. Um, interesting. Um, I didn't know, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh, the tech part of things is not my strong part. You know, I had to learn law, I had to learn how to speak. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know um, I've had to learn a lot of things. And the tech part, I'm like, okay, you know, so. But um, I do know how to write an encrypted email, so that's good. Um, but anyway, I, I didn't know that. My opinion would be, ooh, that sounds kind of, I don't know, yes. concerning. Uh, yeah. Yeah, just in response to that, now yeah. uh, users are actually questioning currently whether Tor is the most secure thing to use, whether you're truly or not, is because of the connection with, uh, I don't know what, which, uh, yeah. yeah. See, you guys are going to want to learn something here. Um, your presentation reminded me a lot of what Edwards, Edward Snowden was saying when he came out as a whistleblower and in the documentary Citizen Four, which I urge everyone to watch. Um, but I was wondering if Ross has any differing opinions about the NSA or their scope uh, compared to Edward Snowden's stances and what are they? Oh, um, I don't think so. And Edward Snowden actually, on our, our front page of our website, there's a video of Edward Snowden addressing Ross's case and saying it's unthinkable the NSA wasn't involved. And, um, from what I know, I think, I, I don't think he does different I mean, William Binney, who was a, a, an NSA administrator and then a whistleblower, was the advisor on, um, well, not said it before, but the um, Snow movie, the other movie. And um, he said, well, basically what he describes, exactly what I described here, and that he was describing it, uh, applied to President Trump. So it's, um, he says they can do it to anybody. So that's sort of interesting. Um, did you hold the views that you hold today about government and voluntary interaction prior to Silk Road and, and the whole situation that Ross went through? 
You know, it's been a real eye-opening experience to see how the government operates on false and personal, especially in prosecuting somebody. I've been being at trial. My sister's here too, Ross's aunt, and she's the two of us were just like, This is happening in America. I mean, honestly, and in the way oh the, the tactics they use and all kinds of things, I've just I've been stunned really. And um, it's very concerning. And um, I would say that I wasn't a fan of big government. I was an entrepreneur and um, you know, it's kind of just leave me alone kind of person. But now I'm I feel like it's really opened my eyes that I think we're really in, the, like I was saying, a very important time in history. I think, I think we really need to wake up. The surveillance state, well, obviously it's real, and um, it's it's really scary. So I've gotten more. I woke it up a lot more, and also about trials and about due process and about. I mean, I don't know if you guys know, but there were two corrupt agents who not only stole over a million dollars, but had the run of the site. They had the ability to change, they could act as Dread Pirate Roberts and other aliases. They could change passwords, pin numbers, put things in chat rooms, uh, chats, and the marketplace, take it out, delete, all this stuff. They're in prison, and um, it was not allowed to be known to the jury. The jury could not, they would not, the judge would not let them know that these agents did this. I mean, I'm like, what? You know, there, there's a whole, I could talk for several hours on all things, but you know, there's, the, the way the trial is conducted, and um, everything's stacked up against the defendant, which is why 97% of people don't go to trial. They plead, because they're threatened and bullied, and admit often the things they haven't done, because they're told if they go to trial, they're gonna lose anyway, and they'll get worse uh, repercussions. This is America. This isn't right. This is, this is not good. Sorry. Uh, do you think Ross ever had ever thought that he was being watched or that he was potentially going to be arrested one day? And then also, in running an international website, do you, did Ross ever think about potentially relocating to a country where the drug laws aren't as harsh? Because I find it interesting that he was arrested here in the United States for running an international website. Well, Ross says he didn't run it for most of the time, so um, he was. You know, I believe he's going out to um, Bitcoin, make a Bitcoin exchange and stuff. He, so he didn't move. So, um, and uh, I forgot what was your other question. It was, did he ever think he was being watched? Watched. Or if he I don't was know. Being a bit caught. website was trying to be shut down. Uh, I personally tend to believe that Bitcoins would not be nearly the level of prominence they are today and so widespread without being uh, kind of co-opted by the Silk Road. And uh, I believe Bitcoins has kind of helped people have a modicum of financial independence, which I know is a big part of uh, Ross's political philosophy. Do you know if he feels any pride as to the website's, you know, association with it? I think that he is happy that Bitcoin is so successful. Um, you know, he's, he thinks it's great. He's for freedom still, you know, his own <laughs> now, and but also just in general. So he, he loves the idea of a, um, a free, a, you know, monetary freedom. So he he's you know 
excited about it. You know, he thinks he's kind of cut off because he doesn't have internet or email. This place, VOP gives violent gang leaders email and they won't give it to us because it's an internet crime and I guess I think he's going to hack it. I don't know. It's, inter it's, a, it's a prison system. It's not a regular email. So he's very cut off, but um, he, um, I think, is, thinks it's great. This, this letter that I mentioned in my introduction, which he wrote to the organizers of the Bitcoin conference, he seemed to actually be quite up to date on I can, I can read the letter. Yeah. Okay. Do you want me to read the letter? It's a letter that he wrote to the Bitcoin conference. I didn't know if you guys would be interested. You want to hear it? Or? Yeah. 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 Um, hi, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for hosting my mom and hearing all she has to say. My Supreme Court petition is on track. Thanks to the support of many of you have given me over the years. Truly, there is much love in this community. So this is an exciting time for Bitcoin, isn't it? When I first learned about it, it was trading for six cents or so. By the way, I sent him at the time, he was all excited about it, and I said, should I get some? He goes, no, mom, it's too volatile. <laughs> like the worst device ever, right? <laughs> anyway, um, it's incredible to see something increase 300,000 fold in value, wow. I saw its potential back then to transform our world, and it hasn't disappointed. If anything, it has exceeded my expectations. Now there's a multitude of altcoins that have sprung up and found their niche. With dozens of coins experimenting with variations on Satoshi's invention, I have faith that we'll find the optimal path forward, learning from each other's mistakes and copying success. We are in the middle of a profound technological revolution. It's beautiful and awesome. I'm grateful just bearing witness to it. It's also a profound opportunity. Our subculture is having an outsized influence on society right now that will only grow. We are the future, my friends. I've been in prison for a few years now, so I'm out of the loop, but it's given me perspective as well. Now more than ever, we need a measure of self-reflection. Let us not forget our roots as we push ahead. Let us stay grounded in the principles that Bitcoin was incubated in, decentralization, a focus on empowering individuals and a community of love and respect. I'm proud of how we flourished and optimistic the best is yet to come. I'm fighting every day for my freedom, and I'm hopeful that one day I'll be out there with you, all my other girls. So that's pretty much how he feels about it. He thinks it's great. And as you can tell from the letter, Ross is very idealistic still. You know, he's he. The idea that he's some kingpin thug who can't you know, be violent for money. He didn't even own a car when he was arrested. He was living with roommates. He's not he's not motivated by money. I'm not saying he's against money, and you know, money's fine, but it's not what really really cares about. He's very idealistic. Anybody else? Okay, well thank you very much for having me. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for visiting the Room of Lives today. In the next episode, I speak one-on-one -on -one with Lynn Ulbricht at my apartment in Austin on her views regarding the case, her activism, experiences and lessons learned, and about Ross, the human being, and her son. Mm -hmm.